Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. All right, bendiciones. That means blessings. Um, it's good to be back with you. Last week I had the privilege of being with our team in Costa Rica, which is a truly incredible experience to see God move and work in a culture outside of the one that you're born into. Uh, and just seeing, especially for me, seeing how God moves and transforms the lives of the people on our team and the impact that that has, uh, it's awesome. So if you haven't been on one of the trips with us and you were able to go, I would encourage you, we've got one more trip this year, we've got three planned for next year. I would encourage you to start looking at how you could make that happen because if you ask anybody that's been on one of these trips, they'll tell you the same thing. It is a life-changing experience. But being someone who talks a lot in a country where I only know like five words creates a little bit of a challenge, so I am excited to be back and to have access to my full arsenal of words again. Uh, there's only so many times you can say bueno before people start looking at you like you're an idiot. Um, so I'm like, I don't need you to know that so quickly. Uh, when I was, I remember a freshman year of college, uh, I met one of my closest friends, a guy named Eric. And when he showed up at school, he looked like he was nine. And you're like, okay, that's, that's an exaggeration. Legitimately, one day, we're hanging out in the lobby. So what happens in a Bible college, right, you have girls' dorms and you have boys' dorms. Boys can't go into the girls' dorms. Girls can't go into the boys' dorms. That's how they avoid shenanigans. Uh, but the lobbies were okay. So you could gather in the lobby. So we were in the lobby with a group of our friends, uh, just kind of hanging out, waiting to go to dinner or something. And he comes out with his class pictures from second grade to 12th grade. And he lays them out. And he says, hey, put these in order. And I'll tell you, I looked at him and I'm like, you took all these pictures on the same day, you just changed your shirt a bunch of times. Like, he's got the same bowl cut, looks exactly the same. We didn't get a single one right. And we legitimately mixed up his fifth and twelfth grade pictures. So, sophomore year, some of the girls in our little group of friends, they're like, we got to do something about this. We're going to do like a, an extreme makeover. So they take him out shopping, help him pick out some clothes. They introduce him to hair product. And they tell him, like, hey, you look like a child, so let your facial hair grow a little bit. Get some scruff, and then you look more like an adult. So he does that, and overnight, every girl on campus is talking about him. Like, who's that new guy that just transferred here? It's like, dude, he's been here for two years. But sometimes changing your appearance, even something as little as changing how you dress, can have a profound impact on your life. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, uh, if you want to go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, what we're going to see uh, as Paul is going to describe essentially the spiritual life extreme makeover and how our relationship with Jesus changes sort of the clothes that we wear. And so he's going to describe two different types of clothing. The first is the clothes of our old life, our pagan, ungodly, heathen selves before we came to Jesus. And the second set of clothes represents our new life in our pursuit and relationship with him. Now, the important thing to understand about this is there's no third set of clothes to choose. 
There's no option to be like, well, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to do good things and live well. I'm going to try to just love people and be good on my own accord. That's not an option afforded to us. The choices that you make in this life is either you will be clothed in sin or you will be clothed in righteousness. So let's take a look. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous, having given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, and every kind of impurity. Who you were before Jesus... You live for yourself, you focus on yourself, you did things your way. And then you come to Jesus, and Jesus makes us new. He changes things. In fact, Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. The Bible tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That when we come to Jesus, we die to ourselves and are raised to walk in the newness of life. What that means is that when you come to Jesus, you don't keep living the way you did before him. See, before Jesus, we lived like the world. We looked like the world. We pursued and valued and dreamed about the things that the world does. But in Jesus, that changes. See, what Paul says is we must no longer walk in those ways. This is not like a suggestion. It's a biblical imperative. We can't afford to lose sight of that. See, the modern church is filled with Christians who profess Jesus with their lips but are unchanged in their lives. People who are still wearing the same clothes they had on when they met Jesus, still living the same lives, doing the same things, making the same choices as they did. There's no difference. Outside of maybe 90 minutes on the occasional Sunday morning, there's no difference in how they live with Jesus than how they lived before Jesus. They're not different because ultimately they don't want to be. So everybody likes the idea of a new life, but we don't always want to let go of the old one. Everybody likes a Jesus who is saving. It's the Jesus who's ruling that we take issue with. And so what we've done in our modern culture is we've created a sort of selective spirituality where you pick and choose the elements of faith that you like and you just ignore the rest. I'll take love, I'll take grace, forgiveness, hope, healing, freedom, that all sounds great. Uh, Rules, nope. Judgment, nope. Wrath, hard pass. Don't make demands. Don't make me change. Don't tell me how to live my life. Jesus, you can be my savior. Just don't try to be my Lord. This attitude that we've created, it it comes from two places. A lot of it comes from the culture that we live in that doesn't like to be told what to do or to have authority over them. But it's also been fueled by the well-intentioned mistakes of the church. Churches that have gotten so focused on putting butts in seats 
wanting to reach lost people. They're like, the only way that we can do that, because if you just present Jesus to people, it's too much, and that's going to turn a lot of them away. So what we're going to do is we're going to water Jesus down, make him more accessible, make him easier to, make that like a, a pill that's easier to swallow, and then we'll get them in because they determined that success is based on number of people that they reach. And ultimately what we've done is we've created a cultural Jesus that is not consistent with the biblical Jesus. Because we are all good with the Jesus who's on the cross, just not the Jesus who's on the throne. And the Jesus that has been created and that is celebrated and talked about and professed so often in the modern world is not really Jesus. And in fact, that version of Jesus is a rejection of Jesus. And all of it, well-intentioned or not, it starts with hardening. When the Bible talks about a hard heart, it's talking about a person who is unwilling or unable to respond to the gospel. Because here's the thing, you can hear God's word, you can believe it, you can accept it, you can memorize it and even teach it to others, and yet you yourself not be changed by it. We can hear and believe in what God says, but not let it shape and mold how we live our lives, not let it govern and alter ourselves. And when we hear the word, but we don't apply it, don't change ourselves to fit with it, what happens is our hearts can start to get hard. What Paul's describing here is the downward spiral of evil. See, rarely does it start out with like blatant, overt rejection. Like, I know God says this. I know this is what I should do. I just don't care, and I'm going to do what I want anyhow. Usually it's subtle. Like, look at the garden with Adam and Eve. Right? How does the devil lure them into sin? He doesn't go, hey, reject God, hate God, do the opposite of what God says. What he does, because here's what gets us into trouble, is he uses reasoning to work around God's instruction. He creates a reasonable path to disobedience that doesn't feel like disobedience. Which is exactly what we are tempted to do every single day. Not direct overt rejection, but elevating our reasoning, our point of view, how we feel as an authority over God's word. We don't feel like we've rejected God's word. We still have it. We just have it so long as it agrees with us. So what's the big deal? It's not like they're hurting anybody. Love is love, right? No. So my, my God's not like that. I don't see it that way. It doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. I don't think of God that way. We start picking and choosing which aspects we take. So did God really say one of the things that comes up all the time is like when people question the authority of Scripture. How do we know that that wasn't written by man? How do we know there weren't mistakes? How do we know that that's actually God? Do you know what that is? What's the question that they're asking? What's the real question behind that? Did God really say? It's the same question that the devil used to lure Adam and Eve into sin in the first place. My favorite is when people say, well, you know what, that, that command, that's a cultural command. That doesn't apply to us today. I used to get frustrated when people said, I don't know if you hear that a lot, but I, I get it all the time, and it's like, I used to get frustrated. Now, it just makes me laugh because of how blatantly obvious it is. 
Because it's true, there are certain commands, certain instructions in Scripture that are cultural and don't have a direct application today. Meat sacrificed to idols, the head coverings that a woman wears versus a man not wears, a woman being allowed to speak in church. These are cultural things that were not to be brought through universal church. There's principles to them, but we don't directly apply them the same way. But there's only a handful of those. But if you look at where people try to place that state of, oh, that's cultural, you know where it's never? (laughs) On the Gospels. It's never Jesus saying, love your enemy, love your neighbor, pray for those who persecute you. It's never the the story of the good Samaritan or the prodigal son. It's never John 3.16. It is always, inevitably, something that the Bible says that goes against the value of our culture. It is always something that the person who hears it doesn't like. It's gender roles. It's authority. It's sexuality. It's when what the Bible says doesn't fit with what we want. We go, oh, you know what? Cultural. There are so many ways and methods that we have to reason our way around the truth into disobedience without ever realizing that that's what we're doing. That's where the hardening of the hearts begins. And as our hearts harden, our eyes begin to darken to the things of God. The chasm between God's life that he calls us to and the life that we live grows wider. And the more we refuse to respond, receive, and be changed, by God's word, the harder it becomes to see his truth at all. Hardening becomes darkening. Darkening leads to separation, separation to reckless, sinful living. But it gets worse. The more we continue to wear the clothes of our old sinful self, the more we become callous to it. And when we make a habit of condoning that which should be condemned, eventually what is shameful becomes celebrated. That's the pattern of the world, where sin is always in high fashion. Verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of your life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says that we are to learn, to hear, to be taught the truth of Jesus. This threefold imagery invokes the idea of being in school, that we are to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him because it is his instructions, it is his teaching that makes us new. Church, the Christian life is about following Jesus. So church, how do you follow a Jesus you don't know? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Church, how can you keep the commands of Jesus if you don't know the commands of Jesus? When we fail to know the word of God, we will be fooled by anything that sounds right. And our enemy is a master of making wrong things sound right. 
Let me be clear. This is not a criticism. This is not a judgment. Because what the devil likes to do is go, oh, I don't know the word very well. Now I should feel guilty and shameful. I'll go hide in a dark hole and not do anything. No, no. Don't feel guilty about it. What you don't know, if you don't have that full breadth of that knowledge, that understanding, if you don't know Jesus as well as you should and know his word as well as you should, don't feel guilty about that. Use that as the fuel to learn. Let it drive you and teach you. We all start our education at different ways and different places. Some of us start later in life. That's okay. It is okay to not know everything now, but it is not okay for us as believers to not be desiring and pursuing growth and maturity in Jesus. You need to hear this, church. Jesus loves you. Not just some future version of you where you figure it all out and you become the best version of yourself and you're living your best life. Jesus loves you now. In your brokenness, in your failures, in your shortcomings and pain, in the struggles of your life, Jesus loves you. But Jesus loves you so much, he is unwilling to leave you that way. Being a Christian is not about believing intellectually in the idea of Jesus. It is about following Jesus and being changed by him. So Paul says, put off your old self, not sprinkle Jesus over the top. Right, like he's a, a dressing that you pour over the salad of your life where now it tastes different and it's better, but it's still basically the same thing. The call to follow Jesus is a complete and total rejection of your old self, of your old ways, your old thoughts, your old values, your old desires and pursuits. You throw all of it away. No matter how good or noble or ethical you considered yourself to be, no matter how moral and kind you were, it's garbage. You throw it away. So that you can put on the new clothes of righteousness in Christ Jesus. But here's the hard part. It's not something that you do once. Every day when you get up in the morning, what do you have to do? Right? If you're leaving the house, you got to get dressed. If you live with other people, you should probably get dressed also for their benefit. Every day we pick what clothes we're going to wear. And the challenge is that the clothes, the old clothes of our old life, they're so familiar. We're so comfortable in them. That it's so easy to just be like, you know what, I'm just going to put them back on. The call to follow Jesus, it's not a decision that you make one time. It's a daily surrender. Every day putting off the old self every day, putting away the clothes of your old life and putting on the new clothes of Jesus. So what does that look like? Well, Paul, for the rest of this chapter, is going to compare and contrast these two outfits. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The world around us, it oozes lies and deception. At every angle, it's very difficult to know who and how much you can trust any source. We are called to put away falsehood. Not just to not lie, but to put away falsehood. There's two reasons for this. First, falsehood destroys fellowship. 
Acts chapter 1, we see the birth of the church. All the way through Acts chapter 4, when the church is referred to, it is painted the same picture. All the believers had everything in common, not considering anything they had their own. And from time to time, those who had would sell their possessions to bring to the apostles to distribute to those who had need. This is a community that was selfless, that was sacrificial, and that was perfectly unified. Then we come to Acts 5, and we meet this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. What gems they are. They sell some of the stuff that they own, and they bring some of the proceeds to the church. Not all, but some. But they tell the church, hey, this is everything we got from the sale. Now, reasonably, you go, so what? They still brought a massive gift to the church they didn't have to bring. This is still a good thing. They're still demonstrating maturity and investment in the gospel. We should celebrate this. But they brought falsehood into the church. And the church that we see from Acts 1 to Acts 4, we never see again. Acts 6, complaining and division. Acts 7, first Christian martyr and persecution. And then the brokenness of our human selves infects the church in a way that we have never been the same. Falsehood destroys fellowship. The second thing is that falsehood destroys your witness. If we can't be trusted because we don't have the integrity of speaking the truth. Now, in love, some of you guys, you know, you love the truth so much that you're like, I don't care if I stab you in the face with it. No, speak the truth in love, graciously. That's part of the process. But if we can't be known for our truthfulness in our daily lives, in the little things of this world, why would anybody trust us for the big eternal things of the kingdom of God? Verse 26 Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Notice it doesn't say don't be angry. It says in your anger, do not sin. Anger is not evil. In fact, at times, we are called to anger. In the face of blatant evil and the opposition of God, we should not be apathetic. We should be angry. But it is difficult to be angry without sinning. However, what the Bible says is that we are to be slow to anger, not immune to anger. There is a good and a bad expression of anger. What makes it so difficult is that anger is a powerful, dominating emotion, and it tends to consume everything else to when that anger kicks into your life. It's all you see. It's all you can think about. You become so hyper-focused on the thing that has caused you to be angry that your reaction swells out of control. Anger itself is not sin, but it almost always leads to sin. In your anger, don't sin. If you can't control yourself when you're angry, go put yourself in time out in the corner. Okay? And don't let the sun go down on your anger. This is not a literal thing. Okay, it's not like, well, I made you mad at 7.45 at night. You've got eight seconds before you're sitting. Like, no, it, the point is, don't nurse it. Don't let it fester. Don't hold on to it because anger is never, in the eyes of Jesus, anger will never be an acceptable excuse for what you do or say when you are angry. In your anger, do not sin. Verse 28. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't steal. I know, right? Like, I read that, I'm like, thanks, Paul. I don't want you to expect me to do with that. Like, guys, don't steal. And you're like, oh, pfft. guess I'll go put this stuff back. Like, really? Like, at this point, you're like, that's a bad thing. You're, I'm not supposed to sit, steal? Like, you're telling me now? I wish you'd have told me that 20 years ago. I've been taking stuff my whole life. Like, when? Like, this is not some great revelation. Don't steal. Come on. But what Paul does with it is actually really profound. Because what does a thief do? They take from someone else in order to benefit themselves. What Paul calls us to do is to be the opposite of a thief, to give of ourselves for the benefit of someone else. Do honest work so that you can honestly give to be a blessing to others. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. The word for corrupt here literally is describing rot or to cause rot. This is dishonest, unkind, vulgar language. It is speech that harms the hearer, like complaining or criticizing. The words we say have great power. And if your words diminish, damage, or harm the person who hears them, they are probably, not always, but they are probably corruptive. We are called to use our words to build people up, not to tear them down. Our words should bless, not belittle. Like, and there's no, like, overemphasizing this point. Like, the word we're taught as kids, right? Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. <sighs> what Jesus says is, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know who you really are, not what you tell yourself, not what you believe about yourself or how other people see. You want to know who you really are in the depths of your heart? Look at what you say. Your words are the window to your heart. That's heavy. Let's make it worse. Jesus says, or the Bible teaches us that we will give an account to Jesus for every careless word you speak. It doesn't matter how right, how valid, how justified you consider yourself to be. It doesn't matter how frustrated or angry you were when you said it. You and I will stand before the Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, seeing the holes in his wrists, and you will answer to him for every careless word you have spoken in this life. Is complaining about your husband leaving the toilet seat up really worth it? Guys, is making a joke at your wife's expense so you look funny, but she looks lesser. Is it worth it? Is that really something that you want to answer to Jesus for? See, one of the clearest indications of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that he changes how we talk to people and about people. 
If nothing else, Christians should stand out in the world simply by how we talk. The things that we say and the things that we don't say. The way we speak to people, even when we're angry, it should make us stand out so much that we are identified in any crowd. We ought to be far more careful with the words that come out of our mouths. This is way harder for me because I talk a lot more than all of you, probably combined. This is a hard and heavy command. When your words harm another believer, you didn't just harm them. You grieved the Spirit of God. Before we speak, we should stop to consider the impact of our words, whether we are saying them out loud or posting them on social media. Words have power. And your words can build up, encourage, strengthen, and support. Or your words can tear down, belittle, frustrate, and destroy. Let no corruptive talk come out of your mouth. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So here's the executive summary. Put away all unloving behavior. Bitterness, complaining, anger, talking bad about people, wishing bad things upon them, that little sense of warmth and validation you get when somebody who's wronged you has something bad happen to you, and you're kind of like, yes, throw it in the trash. But pastor, you don't understand. You don't understand what they've done to me. You don't understand that they hurt me, they wronged me, they mistreated me. Okay, I'm going to tell you two things. Number one, I'm sorry. I hate that that happened to you. It's awful, and I wish it didn't. But let's say you have a coffee mug. And you put it in the dishwasher, something happens and it gets chipped. And then you reach in to get that cup out and your finger goes across that chipped area and you get cut. Why did the mug hurt you? Is it because it's evil? Or is it because it's broken? The sad reality of living in a broken world as broken people is that sometimes, even when we all mean well, you're going to get hurt because of someone else's brokenness. And sometimes, someone else is going to get hurt because of your brokenness. Number two, what they did to you does not change what Jesus called you to do, which is forgive as God forgave you. Because what makes these new clothes different from the clothes of the world around us is the world says, I'm going to treat you the way you treat me. So if you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. If you're mean to me, I'll be mean to you. Jesus says, that's not how we do things in my kingdom. How you treat other people does not depend on how they treat you. It depends on your love for him. So we are not reacting to other people anymore. We are responding to the gospel, forgiving as we have been forgiven by Jesus, not treat as we have been treated by them. See, our old self, it was conformed to the pattern of the world, but the new self is being renewed. But the new self, yeah, it's being renewed by the, by the well, I lost words. It's what happens when you speak Spanish for a week and you don't speak Spanish. You just forget how to talk. 
Our new self is being transformed by the renewing of our minds. There they are. I found them. We live in a culture where Jesus is still the majority view held by people. So the question that I have is why don't we look more like Jesus? Here's how it works. Okay, so uh, for those of you who've been here for a while, you might be familiar with a little bit of this history. We used to preach on this stage, okay? And I had access to the whole stage to run back and forth and make the camera person go, like, oh, you are giving me arthritis. Then they're like, we'll build a smaller stage extension and we'll preach from that. So we limited how far I could move. And then, like, we're going to put a carpet on it. Now you've got to stay on the carpet. So this great big plot that has been going on for years to kind of confine me to a smaller and smaller space. I don't like it. So today we're going to break out of the confinement. I'm going to show you how this works. We come to Jesus, right? That's the cross. And this is the world. I got the whole world in my hands. <laughs> now you got that song in your head. You're welcome. And we understand that when we come to Jesus, we're changed, right? We're different from the world, right? We're called out of the world, and now we are in the world, but we're not of the world. And so, okay, so how do I live that out? How do I honor Jesus in my life with him? How do I faithfully follow him in the practical day-to-day aspects of the life? I've got it. I'll keep the world at arm's length. Right, that's our focus. That's our strategy. The way in which I honor Jesus and faithfully follow Jesus is to make sure that I'm keeping the world at arm's length. What happens when the world moves? What happens when the world gets further and further from God? At no point did I get closer to the world. But I got a whole lot further from Jesus. In fact, I'm further from Jesus than the world was when this thing started. The reason we don't look more like Jesus is because we continually evaluate our performance by comparing ourselves to the world around us. By going, look, I'm still keeping the world at arm's length. I'm still keeping it at a distance. I'm doing well. Keeping the world at arm's length doesn't make you like Jesus. Clinging to the cross does. Jesus calls us to follow him. To look like him. That's what the word Christian means. It means little Christ. So Paul says, put off the old self. And put on the new self in Jesus. But there's something in between. A very important step that we are renewed by the Spirit of God. You're not doing this on your own. This is not your strength, your work. It's not you changing you. It's the Holy Spirit at work changing you through Jesus. It is not you doing the work, you making yourself different, you living a holy life and altering your behavior. It is you being empowered by the Spirit to be faithful in your obedience to Jesus. You don't change you. Jesus changes you. You don't make the clothes of righteousness. Jesus makes the clothes of righteousness. You just wear them. And every day you decide which outfit you're going to put on. The sin of the old self or the new clothes of Jesus. And at first, listen, at first, putting on the clothes of Jesus is challenging. Because you're not comfortable with them. You're not familiar with them yet. But the more you do it, the easier it gets. The more you put on the clothes of Jesus, the more you experience the joy and the transformation of the new life that he gives. Jesus says, be kind. 
be patient, be tender-hearted with one another, treat each other with grace and forgiveness. Church, Jesus didn't just come to save you. He came to do a work in you. He came to make you new. And that new life begins with the throwing off of the old one. We grow in that new life. We mature in that new life by continually and repeatedly throwing off the old one. Because when you reject and remove the old self, you prepare yourself to be made new, to be made like Jesus. We are called to look like Jesus, which you can only do by living like Jesus and loving like Jesus, which you can't do on your own. You have to be with Jesus and through him be empowered by Jesus. And some of you are here and you're like, I, I don't see it. I'm trying. I just, I look at my life and I see brokenness. I see pain. I see struggles. I see failures and mistakes. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I don't know what I'm missing. Maybe I'm just broken. And maybe, you know what the thing though is like I hide it well, but I'm just, I'm kind of a mess. Guess what? We're all a mess. Do you know why? We're works in progress. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That is future tense. It doesn't say he, he already did bring it to completion. It doesn't say he's already done. It says he will bring it to completion because Jesus isn't done. And so the reason that you see problems and struggles and hardships in your life is not because God has abandoned you. It's because he's not done with you. God is working on you. If you are in Christ, you are the workmanship of Jesus, and he is faithful to bring his work to completion. He is not done with you. So don't stop. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Every day we throw off the old self and we put on the new clothes of Jesus so that we could be transformed by Jesus because he is doing a good work in you. Because when Jesus comes into your life, he changes you. That's what this is all about. When we take communion, we are remembering. We are celebrating the work that Jesus did on the cross, that we were made new by his blood, that we were delivered by his broken body, and through his sacrifice, we are changed from sinner and enemy of God to saint and child of God. So when we take this bread together, we remember the sacrifice, the cost, the suffering that Jesus endured for you and for me so that we could be made new. Let's take it. And the cup represents the blood, the life of Jesus. When we take that life into ourselves, we remind ourselves that it is not us that is doing it. It is through his power, through his life, that we are being made new, that we are being changed. We are washed by his blood. And when we take this together, we celebrate that. Jesus died to make you new. Not so that you can go back to living the way you did before, 
but so that you can walk in the newness of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for all that you are. That you did not leave us to ourselves, but that God, you reached down into the world. That you sacrificed your son so that through him, we could be brought to you. God, I pray that you would do that work in us every single day, that you would honor every time we put on the clothes of Jesus, that you would show us just how powerful and impactful the change that you bring could be. For those who are hurting, that you could bring healing. For those who are struggling, that you would bring help. For those who are having relational, marital issues, God, that you would bring peace and reconciliation. Do what only you can do. Change us in a way that we could never change ourselves, that each and every day we would begin to look more like Jesus. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace.